Tonight we close the book of 1 Samuel. In chapter 31, we look at the life and the death, if you will, of Saul as he's defeated on Gilboa and Jonathan and Saul are killed. Look at chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa and they cut off his head. And they stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Azureth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshin. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul and all the valiant men arose and they traveled all night and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. Remember what the theme of the book of First Samuel is. It is, if you will, the biography of Samuel, of Saul, of David. You'll remember that as we began our book, Samuel was given by God to Hannah in response to her desperate prayer for a baby. Hannah wanted a baby and she was given a special baby. And in answer to her prayer, she would give that baby back to the Lord to accomplish God's plan and to accomplish God's purpose. Can one person change the course of history? It's true. One can. A baby born is going to change the course of history for Israel. And Samuel grows up and he becomes a spokesperson for God. And Saul is Israel's first king. And remember what we've already learned, that Saul is a type, a picture of the old man. 
Saul is a picture of our life before Christ. Saul is a picture of how what it means to live in rebellion and disobedience against God. And so he is the person who's enslaved to sin. He's enslaved to selfishness. He's committed to his own life. He's committed to his own passion. He's committed to his own ambitions. And David is a picture of the new man. Over and over again, as we follow David, we see that he's a man after God's own heart. And the reason why we refer to him as a man after God's own heart is because he is willing to forsake his sin. He's willing to pursue the Lord. David, like many Christians, certainly didn't lead a perfect life. David has experienced times of trusting the Lord and not trusting the Lord. He's experienced times of walking with the Lord and not walking with the Lord. He's experienced times of obeying the Lord and not obeying the Lord. And David has acted with courage and compassion. And he's also acted with ruthless disregard of the promises of God and the character of God. David's life has been a life of faith and of giftedness and of love, but he's also experienced sorrow and tragedy. He has also experienced what it means to be misunderstood and hounded and persecuted and betrayed. And David has lost love and he has lost his family and he's lost his job and he's lost face. But he's turned back to the Lord, you'll remember. He wept. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He found the courage to go in a different direction because David is able to do what Saul could not bring himself to do. I want you to understand something about these two figures. Both Saul and David are anointed by Samuel. Both Saul and David are have begun well. Both Saul and David are warriors. Both Saul and David committed gross sins. But David was able to do what Saul couldn't bring himself to do. David was willing to forsake his sin. David was willing to repent of his sin. David was willing to walk away from his sin. David was willing to be grieved over his sin and turn from it and then throw himself on the grace and the mercy and the love of God. David is a man after God's own heart because he's able to turn from sin, forsake sin, repent of sin, and then return to God. And this becomes the key concept because you see, you are a man or a woman after God's own heart. If you are able to learn from your failure, learn from your defeat, learn from your sin, learn from your hypocrisy, learn from your inconsistency and say, I'm not going to continue it. I'm not going to continue to find excuses for disobeying God. We have to come to a place of trusting and having complete confidence in Jesus, who's the son of David. Now, remember, remember, in the last chapter, David has lost his wife and he's lost his possessions and he's lost faith with the, the, the Philistines. He's lost the respect of his own men. But David has strengthened himself in the Lord. And remember what we've already learned on the worst day of his life. He weeps. He turns to the Lord. Saul. On the worst day of his life. 
in the same situation winds up at a witch's house, calls for a seance, calls up the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel. Now, you've got to understand something. David knows God. Saul does not know God. Do you know what he really knows? Sin. That's what he really knows. You know how we know that? You know sin when that's what you want and that's what you embrace and that's what you walk in. And that's exactly what Saul does. Saul does what every human being, Saul does what every man and every woman who knows only sin. The man or the woman who knows only sin is embarked on a course of self-destruction. That's exactly what will happen. The element of self-destruction is present in the will of man. Disobedience Listen carefully. Disobedience will always lead to self-destruction. Sin is, a, is really a, a kind of a, a form of suicide. It's a slow march towards self-destruction. And the path of life, obviously, is the path of doing the will of God. Those are the two paths. I'll walk in the way of God or I won't walk in the way of God. David finds himself walking in the way of God. Saul, look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they fell on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons. For those of you who have an opportunity to come with me to Israel, we go into the Jezreel Valley. You see this vast plain. And this is the place that is also known as Har Megiddo. You know it sometimes from the book of Revelation called the place of Armageddon. This is a, 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 a long field. Um, and on one side is Mount Gilboa. And... Saul finds himself there, and in two short verses, the Bible paints a bleak picture of this short, hopeless war that Saul and his sons have waged against the enemies of Israel. And in this short description of the battle, we see an underlying tone, and the underlying tone is judgment. And in verse 3, it says, The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. He finds himself in a circumstance where the notorious Philistines, if they catch officers, and clearly in ancient battle... The object of ancient battle is always capture the king. Now, the men of Israel desperately retreat, but they're outmanned and they're outgunned by the armies of the Philistines. And on the eastern plains of Jezreel, the mountains merge. 
The Philistines were people who fought on an open plain. And the reason why they fought on an open plain is because they had the superior chariot power. But the only way that you're going to be able to have a chariot is on a, a, a level playing field. And so the Israeli soldiers, in the hopes that they could gain at least somewhat of an advantage, retreat into the mountains. And so they can at least try and make it a fair fight. But it isn't a fair fight. And the reason why it's not a fair fight is because of bad leadership. This is the same place where Gideon defeated the foes of Israel. But Saul is no Gideon. The battlefield is littered with the dead bodies of sons and husbands, and they're engaged in a battle that they cannot win. But this becomes an important point for each and every one of us. When you embark on a course of rebellion and, and sinful disobedience, you're waging a war that you cannot win. You cannot win it. You might think that you can control your sin. You might think that you can say this far and no further. But you're playing a dangerous game. Now Saul is surrounded by his men. He comes to that place of the last stand. He's surrounded by his men and then he's surrounded by his sons. And you can imagine as the battle is raging. And he sees his men begin to fall and he sees his sons slaughtered right before him. What do you suppose he's thinking? What's going through his mind right at that very moment? I'm going to suggest to you that it's perhaps Samuel's words from chapter 28, verse 16. The Lord has departed from you and become your enemy. And the Lord has done for himself of of as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord or execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Can you imagine? Saul is fighting for his life and everybody's dying. And as everybody is dying around him, do you suppose he, he may have asked this question? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And the voice is whispering. You rejected the voice of God. You rejected the voice of the prophet. You, had, you rejected the instructions of God. God gave you warning after warning after warning. He said to you, I want you to deal with Amalek. And remember what we learned, that Amalek becomes a type and a picture of sin in the Bible. God's judgment on Amalek is destroy them all. I want them all gone. Every man, every woman, every child, everything that they have, everything that they own, everything that is even remotely associated with Amalek, I want it gone. And remember Saul's response? Well, there's some good things. There's some good things. I know what I'll do. I'll save the good things and then I'll offer them as a sacrifice for God. And remember, you remember what happened when Saul was confronted by Samuel. Have you done what the Lord asked? Well, yeah. Well, then why do I hear the bleeding of the sheep? And remember, obedience is better than sacrifice. 
Why is this happening? First Samuel chapter 28, verse 19 says, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. In rebellion and disobedience, he sought supernatural instruction on what to do. And the spirit of the prophet of Samuel said, you know what? I have a word from God for you. Here's the word. Judgment. Judgment. Have you ever thought, well, why didn't you give me a little bit of a warning? God. Why didn't you let me know that this kind of catastrophic circumstance is about to happen? Why do you have to wait until your resources are gone and your job is gone and your wife is gone and your circumstances are miserable and horrible before you cry out to God? Here's my advice, and I, I, I hope you heed it. If you find yourself in a position of rebellion and disobedience, stop now. Stop now. Get right with God. Make amends with the people that you've hurt. Saul and his sons will die. Now think about this with the arrows embedded in his body and with his sons dead. You suppose Saul's life flashed before his eyes? I was listening to I was doing an errand and I was in my car and Rush Limbaugh had just re- returned to his his uh, his radio program. And he had um, a, a, what seemed like a heart attack and hospitalization. And, you know, he's recounting his experiences of of, of the, the numbness and and the pain in his chest. And and he he said, but I, I didn't see anything like, you know, my life didn't flash before my eyes or anything like that. You know, we sort of expect that to happen. Saul's tragic circumstances are about to come crashing in. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting translation from the Latin Vulgate when it speaks of Saul's circumstances, where it says he was wounded by the archers in verse verse three. It says he was wounded in the abdomen. In the the Latin Vulgate, it says he was wounded in the abdomen and it was a mortal wound. For those of you who are familiar with the West, if if you, like me, grew up in the wild, wild West, the cowboys have a saying for this. It's called gut shot. You've heard of it. You went for your weapon and he shot you in the gut. He's gut shot. Okay, here's the idea. I don't want to get too graphic here. But the arrow has gone in, quite possibly, into his abdomen. His internal organs are leaking out, there's no escape. His is a mortal wound. He won't survive this injury. And he begs the armor bearer to finish him off. Even, you need to understand this, even up till the end, Saul is concerned about image. In other words, he doesn't cry out to God and go, hey, you know, I've lived a life of wickedness and rebellion and disobedience. And if ever there was a time to get right with God, if ever there's a time to have a deathbed confession, if ever there is a time like the thief on the cross to turn to Jesus and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom, it's now. But Saul doesn't care about God or eternal life. He cares about the people who are going to stumble on to his dead body. 
Have you ever thought about when you're going to die, what you're going to look like when you're dead? I have a friend who, it's his job, he's a mortician. And he's maybe the best that I've ever met. He is a wonderful, wonderful man when it comes to um, preparing people for death. And I want him to do my funeral. But because I've met his wife, I don't want her to participate. Because the thought of her seeing me naked is very disturbing to me. So I just said, look, when it comes time to bury me, I need you to make sure that only a limited few people get to sort of participate at that particular point in time. Now, I don't know why, because I'm sure that I'm not going to care. God and repentance mean nothing to Saul Saul is about to enter into eternity. Saul is about to meet his maker. And who is his maker? David's son. David's son is going to be the person who evaluates Saul. Disobedience will often dull our thinking and cloud our judgment. You know, when you're in sin, it isn't unusual for you to care more about what other people think than about what God thinks. That's one of the reasons, and that's one of the ways of knowing that you're not quite right. What will my mom think? What will my dad think? What will my husband think? What will my wife think? What will my neighbor think? Who cares? What will my friends think? Who cares what your friends think? The person that you have to impress right about now is the Lord. There is not a single word in the text that Saul prayed or that he repented. Here's how his life ends. He falls on his sword and he dies. And in verse 5 it says, And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and he died with him. Here's the point. God said your rebellion and your disobedience isn't going to end well. It's going to end very badly. Make no mistake about it. When the Bible gives us a warning about judgment, we would do well to listen to it. When God pronounces judgment, it will happen. And the Lord warned Saul that if he continued wicked, rebellious disobedience, he's going to face the judgment of God. He refuses to heed the warning. He refuses to repent. He refuses to trust the Lord. Question. What would you write on Saul's tombstone? Imagine it's your job. It's your job. You have to gather up the remains. You have to figure out one last thing to put on his tombstone. Here's what I would write. I would write about what he himself said in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 21. Do you remember what he said earlier? Remember when he was hunting down David? Remember how David spared his life? Saul was trying to kill him. David acted with courtesy and decency and respect 
over and over again, no matter how wicked and perverse and sinful Saul was, David responds with kindness. And finally, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 21, when he cut off the square from his robe and he calls out from across the valley and in Getty, it says in 1 Samuel 26, 21, then Saul said, I've sinned. No, Jimmy Swaggart didn't invent that. Saul, I've sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. I know all of this probably won't fit on the tombstone, will it? Well, maybe we need to shorten it. Let's see what the end of the sentence says. Indeed, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere. I think we can get that on the tombstone, don't you? I have played the fool. That's probably what should go. <laughs> Let's see if I can remember the other two, the tombstone that I saw at Tombstone, Arizona. Pause, my friend, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you once, you soon will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. And then someone had scribbled underneath that tombstone. To follow you is not my intent. Until I know which way you went. Saul had been anointed by Samuel. Saul had walked with the prophets. Saul seemed to have God in his life. But now he lives and dies. Listen carefully. He lives and dies like a person who never knew God. Isn't that the saddest thing that you've ever heard? To grow up in a Christian home and to be exposed to the Bible and the songs of grace and the songs of mercy. Can you imagine you spend a time in sweet communion and precious friendship and relationship with God? Imagine Saul's testimony. I played the fool. I used to know God. Could that be your testimony? I used to know him. I used to go to church. I used to pray. I used to read my Bible. I used to believe. I used to want purity and decency in my life. That's what I used to want. There was a time. There was a time in Saul's life when he was head and shoulders over the competition. Now Saul doesn't even rate the quiet dignity of a guest appearance on The Biggest Loser. He could have been David's mentor. Instead, he chose to be David's murderer. J. Sidlow Baxter writes about what it means to play the fool. He writes, quote, a man plays the fool when he neglects his godly friends. As Saul neglected Samuel, a man plays the fool when he goes on enterprises for God before God has sent him. As Saul did, a man plays the fool when he disobeys God in what seems like small matters, as Saul at first did. For such a disobedience always seems to lead to a worse default. It's 
Sidlow Baxter's way of saying, your little sins seem to get progressively worse and worse. A man plays the fool when he tries to cover up his disobedience to God by religious excuses, as Saul did, to obey is better than sacrifice. A man plays the fool when he tries to persuade himself that he's doing the will of God as Saul tried to persuade himself when all the time, deep down in his heart, he knows otherwise. A man plays the fool when he allows jealousy and hatred to master and enslave and otherwise deprave him as Saul did toward David. A man plays the fool when he knowingly fights against God as Saul did in hunting David to save his own face. A man plays the fool when he turns from God. A man plays the fool when he turns from the God that he grieves and he seeks an alternative in spiritism to traffic with spirits from beyond. The end of all these ways of sin and folly is mortal and spiritual suicide. We can only finish any such downgrade source with the pathetic groan of Saul. I play it the fool. Is that what's going to characterize your life? When you look back and you consider your circumstances and you say, have I played the fool? Let me help you here. Foolish lives almost invariably lead to tragic deaths. Chuck Swindoll points out six amazing analogies between the death of Saul and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be thinking, like me, what? What could the death of Saul have in common with the death of Jesus Christ? That makes no sense. But listen to what he says, in part. I'm going to summarize it and and make it uh, a little less lengthy, but he says... Saul's death appeared to be the end of all national hope. When Saul died, many people must have thought the experiment or the experiment in a ruling monarchy in Israel is over. In the same way, the death of Jesus seemed to signal the loss of hope, both national and spiritual. The disciples watching Jesus die must have thought it was all a hoax. Jesus isn't who he says he is. There's no kingdom. Thomas might have thought. Jesus isn't who he says he is. The kingdom is a dream. And number two, it appeared that the victory didn't belong to the Lord, but the Lord's enemies. It looks like God has failed. Number three, Saul's death paves the way for an entirely new plan of operation and ushers in David's kingly line. This would eventually lead to the birth of Jesus as the Messiah. Number four, Saul's death opens the door of opportunity for another who wouldn't have otherwise been included in the messianic line, namely David. Jesus' death opens the door for a wholesale salvation for the Gentiles. We would have much greater difficulty in opening the door of grace. Number five, Saul's death ends an era of dissatisfaction and failure. Christ's death ends an era of law and observation 
introducing a new arrangement based on grace and truth. And number six, Saul's death displays the foolishness of human beings. Christ's death displays the foolishness of God. Even in God's foolishness, however, the results are incredible. The impossible becomes possible. The unbelievable becomes true. Jesus, the son of David, can save people from their sin. And his death changes everything. And look what it says. In verse 6, so Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw the men of Israel, that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead and that Saul and his sons and that they forsook the cities and they fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Understand, Saul has led the children of Israel into a disastrous battle. Instead of defeating the enemy and instead of occupying the land, they're forced to give up what little progress that they've made. We live in a fallen world. When Adam sinned, the whole creation was dragged into human beings' rebellion against God. Now think about what the death and defeat of Saul meant to the nation. Saul, in his rebellion and disobedience, drags the nation into the battle and wives lost their husbands and mothers and fathers lost their sons and families lost their home and they lost their farm and they lost their livelihood. Is it possible that sin can destroy your family? What do you think? Now, I want you to think something else. Saul had been raised up by God to throw off the oppression of the Philistines. But now the enemies of God have taken what rightly belongs to the children of God. The reason why this becomes important to you, this is exactly what happens when we, when we give in to evil and sin in our lives. We give back to the enemy what belongs to God. Your life belongs to God. Your heart belongs to God. Your circumstances belong to God. The blessings and the mercy and the grace and the love that has been bought by the sacrifice of Jesus belongs to God. We give back to the devil and we give back to the flesh and we give back to the world what rightly belongs to Jesus. When we embark on a course of rebellion and sin and disobedience. You know, it's normal for defeated foes to give up what belongs to them. There's an old story of a ship that was traveling across the Mediterranean. And as it was traveling across the Mediterranean, they went down below and one of the passengers had cut a hole in the side of the ship. 
And the sailors came and they demanded to know what he was doing. And the passenger said, what does it matter to you? It's below my bunk. It never occurred to the passenger that his hole could sink the whole ship. Why do I even bring up this story? Because you think your sin may be your sin. You may think that your sin doesn't matter to the family. But don't you realize that when you disobey God, when you rebel against God, when you dishonor God, you put all of us at risk. It's because your life matters. This is what the New Testament means when it says, we being many are one body, we're joined and we're fitted together. Your impurity becomes our impurity. Your failure becomes our failure. When your marriage fails, something dies. Something that's real and something that's important and something that's valuable to each and every one of us. Randy Alcorn writes about this issue as he's addressing a group of pastors and ministers who are sometimes tempted to go in a direction that puts all ministers at risk. He writes, whenever I feel particularly vulnerable to sexual temptation, I find it helpful to review what effects my actions could have. Grieving the Lord who has redeemed me, dragging his sacred name into the mud, one day having to look at Jesus, the righteous judge, in the face and give an account of my action, following in the footsteps of these people whose immorality forfeited their ministries, causes me to shudder. And then he goes, list the names. And he begins to rehearse in his own mind the laundry list of those men who you have heard on the radio. You've read their books. You've been inspired by their ministry, influencing untold hurt on Nancy, my best friend and loyal wife, losing Nancy's respect and trust, hurting my beloved daughters, Corinna and Angie. Destroying my example and credibility with my children, nullifying both present and future efforts to teach them to obey God. He puts in parentheses, why listen to a man who's betrayed mom and destroyed our family? If my blindness should continue or my wife is unable to forgive me, I could lose my wife and I could lose my children forever. Causing shame to my family. Why isn't daddy a pastor anymore? Losing self-respect. Creating a form of guilt awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, would I be able to forgive myself? Forming memories and flashbacks that could plague future intimacy with my wife. Wasting years of ministry training and experience for a long time, maybe even permanently. Forfeiting the effects of years of witnessing to my father and reinforcing his distrust for ministers that has only now begun to soften by my example, but that would harden perhaps permanently because of my immorality, undermining the faithful example and hard work of other Christians in our community. 
bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God and all that is good, heaping judgment and endless difficulty on the person with whom I have committed adultery, possibly bearing the physical consequences of diseases like gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, herpes, AIDS, maybe infecting Nancy, or in the case of AIDS, maybe even killing her, possibly causing pregnancy with the personal and financial implications, including a lifelong reminder of my sin, bringing shame and hurt to fellow pastors and elders. And he goes and and then he begins to list the names, causing shame and hurt to my friends, especially those who I've led to Christ and discipled. And then he goes, I'm going to list the names, invoking shame and lifelong embarrassment upon myself. It's quite a laundry list. When you begin to do the math and you begin to think it through and you begin to ask and answer this question, this is what my sin is doing to my wife, to my husband, to my children, to my church. And in verse eight, it says, so it happened the next day. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor. And they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Azeroth and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshean. Alfred Edersheim sums up the scene in just a few words. He says, And now it was night. A dark Philistine night. The headless bodies of Saul and his sons, deserted by all, swung in the wind on the walls of Bethshean. Amid the hoarse music of vultures and jackals, unquote. Isn't that horrible? It didn't have to turn out this way. It didn't have to be this way. He didn't have to die. And his children didn't have to die. And he didn't have to have his head cut off. And he didn't have to have his body nailed to a wall. He didn't have to humiliate himself and all of Israel. It didn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to be this way with you. Doesn't have to end badly. You don't have to wake up one morning and find your husband gone or your wife gone. It doesn't have to end badly. You don't have to destroy your life by living in rebellion and disobedience. It doesn't have to be this way. But Saul chose a fool's path. And every day he chose to compromise. And every day he chose to disobey. Every day that he chose to compromise and every day he chose to disobey, he spit 
in God's face and said, I don't care about the consequences. I don't need your grace. Really? F.B. Meyer says, this is the bitterest of all. To know that suffering need not have been, that it has resulted from indiscretion and inconsistency, that it is the harvest of one's sowing, that the vultures that feed on the vitals is a nesting of one's own rearing. Ah, me, this is pain. In other words, it's his way of saying, I can't believe that this has happened. But believe it. Believe it. You know, one of the problems with the consequences of personal sin. It looks like God failed. When a TV evangelist cheats on his wife or cheats the viewers out of their money, when pastors are picked up for soliciting a prostitute, when leaders are brought up on charges of child molesting, it looks it looks very much like God failed. And when the pagan, uncircumcised, non-covenant Philistines nail Saul and his sons' dead bodies to the wall, the world began to rejoice. And they had a party. And the God of Israel was viewed as weak and ineffective. And the reason why the God of Israel is seen as weak and ineffective, he can't protect Israel's king. He can't protect Israel's family. He can't protect Israel. Israel's nation. And that's what happens to you. That's what the watching world sees. When you leave your husband, when you divorce your wife, when you continue to drink, when you continue to embrace pornography, when you continue to live a life of rebellion and disobedience and you think that it's never going to catch up to you, the false gods of the Philistines appear to have won. The God of Israel appears to have lost. Question. Is it true? Has God left the throne? Has right ceased to be right and wrong ceased to be wrong? Has heaven is no longer heaven and hell no longer hell? Does grace fail to be grace? Does mercy fail to be mercy? And does judgment fail to be judgment? Nothing has changed. When Christians fail, when Christians fall... It doesn't mean that Jesus is a failure and it doesn't mean that God is a liar and it doesn't mean that the Bible isn't true. The Philistines forgot for a moment the lesson that they had learned years earlier when they took the Ark of the Covenant and God sent a plague of rats and hemorrhoids. The Philistines found their God with his head cut off and his hands cut off. And sometimes the world forgets that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Saul's armor became a museum exhibit in the Philistine stronghold in the temple of Ashtaroth. She's the goddess of, of lust, by the way. And in 1 Samuel 31, 9, it says, and they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor and they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols among the people. Saul's head became a, a, a permanent display in the temple of Dagon. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine somebody cutting off your head and then putting it on display at the Denver Museum of Natural History? Wow, what's Gino's head doing in there? Wow, it's like an amazing story. You know what they would do? They would, they would put my head in the evolution exhibit. That Samson had earlier destroyed. In verse 11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and they traveled all night and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. Now the men of Jabesh Gilead aren't Jews. And they're not Philistines. But you'll remember that Saul early in his career had saved the people of Jabesh Gilead. And they walked all night to retrieve the desecrated bodies of Saul and sons. And they took the bodies back and they burned them and they buried them. You want to know why? Because he is the anointed of God. And he deserved respect. Now, this might come as a shock to you. If ever a leader deserved to be disrespected and dishonored, it was Saul, wasn't it? If anyone deserved judgment, it was Saul. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that because he is God's anointed, he needs to be treated with the dignity and the respect that goes with the office. Now, this doesn't mean that we, res- that we, you know, we are to respect our leaders and we are to respect the office. That doesn't mean we, we support wicked decisions or unjust or evil behavior. And when we oppose, we oppose in righteousness and an honor. But nothing will cause you to look at life so seriously as death. There's nothing that will create inside of your heart a specific sense in in terms of your own life, in your own future. than when you have to bury your mother or you have to bury your father or you have to bury your child. All of a sudden, your life gets put into a perspective. And you begin to think about your life and you begin to think about your future. I want you to do an exercise. I don't normally do this, but I want you to do an exercise. I want you to ask yourself this question. What do you want written on your tombstone? What do you want your tombstone to say? Go ahead and write the script. Be objective. Don't be too harsh. But don't fudge the facts. Think about it for just a moment. What do you want on there? She loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. What do you want it to say? I played the fool. Are you an authentic Christian? Do you ever ask the question, 
I wonder if my life could have been different. Let me help you with something. You are a man after God's own heart or you are a woman after God's own heart if you are willing to forsake sin and embrace Christ and live for Him now. Or you're going to be very much like Saul. If you continue down the road of rebellion and disobedience. I am here to tell you something. It doesn't have to end badly. Do you know David's son? Or will you be like Saul? Will you refuse to heed the warning? Will you refuse to repent? Will your legacy be the last desperate attempt of someone to make something honorable and something decent of your death all the while knowing that in the end you were much more in love with your sin than you were with your Savior? We're going to have communion in just a moment, and I'm going to have Isaac come up, and we're going to sing some songs. What I want you to do is I want you to just hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. But before we do that, I want you to examine your heart. You find yourself in a circumstance where you've been less than honest with God, and you've been less than committed to your Lord. If ever there was a time to repent, it's now. Take advantage of grace and mercy and love. I'm going to pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I pray for that man. I pray for that woman whose heart is empty and their life is miserable. Lord, I pray for that man or that woman who finds themselves medicating themselves through drugs or alcohol. Lord, I pray. I pray for that man or that woman who is trapped in in, in a world of pornography. I pray for that man or that woman who is is living a life of rebellion and disobedience, of duplicity and hypocrisy. Lord, I pray that like David, they would weep and they would grieve over their sin, but they would come to you. They would acknowledge their sin and they would be willing to receive the grace and the mercy that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for that person. Who still hears the voices whispering, I can't let anybody know. No one can know the depth of my depravity. No one can know the darkness of my heart. No one can know the wickedness of my circumstances. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would penetrate that darkness and that they would let you know that they would cry out to you, that they would stop playing games with you. That they would allow the light of your love and ministry to flood their heart. Lord, I pray that they would experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that it doesn't have to end badly.
Jesus' name.